Hello, boys and ghouls, and welcome to a grave episode where we investigate the classic zombie horror film, Night of the Living Dead. Follow along as we trace the origins of this innovative effort by a group of Pittsburgh advertisers who spent their summer making movie history. Telling a tale of a handful of people in a farmhouse, surrounded by flesh-eating ghouls, these first-time filmmakers created a new terror ahead of its time. So, board up the windows and doors. Don't go in the basement, or do. Make yourself some food. As we present Boys and Ghouls, episode 78, all about the Night of the Living Dead. You want to see something really scary? They come from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead. Dummies, exploding heads, psychos, fanatics, murderers, nutcases. Now, do we all agree that what we are dealing with is vampires? starting off with just general chatting but i thought i'd just kind of go until we feel natural just for a moment oh good luck okay how many episodes is this 78 <laughs> for but not natural yet <laughs> do we need spooky gab this is our post halloween episode oh indeed you know we, we let a real long time go in between episodes because cat without really discussing it we seem to be favoring uh quality over quantity Mm-hmm. With getting out boys and ghouls? Yes. Right. It's been a bit of a challenge lately. Because you've got more of a jobby job. I've got a jobby job, and I've gotten more responsibility jobs. And Since this podcast started, I mean, you went from, like, parking cars yeah. to, like, working in an office. Yes. You went from being a single lady out on the town to being a wife and cat mother. That's exactly right. <laughs> so it's to be expected that... uh getting out a horror movie podcast of the quality that we've become accustomed to yeah once a month on the 13th is uh not as possible as it was that said i think from everything i've heard from other people who have done it the first year of a new kind of jobby job the whole year can be an adjustment period and it's been a little over a year now and i think now's probably time for me to sort of figure out how to restructure my personal schedule so that it's a little bit less difficult. <laughs> so you're going to refocus on boys and ghouls. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. We've also got the holidays coming up. So I can say that after this episode, I don't know when the next one will come out, but we've already discussed the topic and when it does come out, it'll be a good one. That's right. Let me get one more book in here. Oh, sure. I mean, I don't, not a big one. There you go. Marshall. Uh, mm. Marshall. Catman Crothers. <laughs> You've already used that one, but I love it. I've only got like three. 
you made the point to me that this is our first post-Halloween episode. Yeah. So I want to tell you my fun story about how I picked and what it was like to wear my Halloween costume this year. Because I did something super different yeah. than I've ever done. So um, usually I kind of cosplay a costume together. Like I observe a movie character and then I pick the pieces and I find them and I put together everything and then I like learn their lines and it's crazy. But this year, like, life just got in the way. But I really wanted to bring something really magical to the table. Especially, I really wanted to delight and surprise Matthew when I saw him. And so I scoured the internet. And by the internet, I mean two websites. Spirit Halloween and then Halloween Town Costumes, which is our local costume shop here in Burbank that's, like, year-round and awesome. And they had a really great selection. But both websites really disappointed me when it came to women's costumes. I had okay. a f- I had several thoughts. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll be, like, a witch, but, like, a real witch. Like, not a real witch, but a witch that, like, now, got burned. When it comes to things like being a giant hot dog or a salt and pepper shaker or something like that, do those go under men or do those go, is there, like, a gender-neutral that's a really great Art. question. They probably file them under both. I wasn't really looking in that like arena. When, like when you're food or a giant version of some object. Right. That's a great question. We'll have to investigate. But I got pretty frustrated, so I started looking at the men's costumes. Because I was like, screw this. Why am I looking at women's costumes? Why am I not just looking at a category? This is dumb. So I clicked on the men's costumes, and I'm scrolling through. And one caught my eye. And I fell in love. And I marched my booty down to Halloween Town Costumes. And I texted you. Because you've always talked about kind of the... I've, I've usually complained about going to a Halloween Town oh, the hustle and the bustle. place well, around like Halloween. It was before Halloween, wasn't it? It was, yeah. And I've said to you before, like, eh, I'm very get off my lawn with people about that. So I texted you and I was like, all right, Marshall, I get it. I liked the hustle and bustle. It was nice being in the Halloween air. The energy was high. And I found my costume, which was a Headless Horseman costume. And when I was looking at it and seeing the pieces that were involved and that my face was going to be covered, my first thought was, of course, like, oh, this is going to be really uncomfortable. But then I thought, who cares? The impact this is going to have is going to make it all worth it. And I was right. When you're at a place and people are like, oh no, a headless horseman showed up. Yes, and I will say that a couple times. So Matthew and I went to the Sugarmint Gallery over in South Pasadena, right by the Myers house. Mm-hmm. And the owners were like totally thrilled. I was the only one who was dressed up. But then people would ask later in the evening, they were like, let me see your face. And everyone thought I was a guy until I showed them I was a girl, which is, I'm kind of like... All right, I guess that makes sense, because the Headless Horse Man. Yeah. Um, However, the thing that was more surprising, but probably shouldn't have been, is that I posted, like, a video on social media, on Instagram, of me, like, at this party, Mm -hmm. with, like, a drink in my hand, dancing. It's funny. Yeah, no, I I believe I I saw the one you're referring to. Yes, and I think my caption was, like, had a great time at the Black and Orange Bash at Sugarman Gallery. And I realized pretty quickly from speaking to a couple of people in person that nobody understood it was me in the video. Right. They thought I was just taking video because why would they assume it was me? Because they can't see your head. <laughs> yes. But also, like, it was just so far outside of the realm of anyone's understanding that a girl would... I don't think I'm putting too fine a point on this. That, that a girl would not be the headless horseman? Yeah, it was confusing for people. Anyway, it was uncomfortable, and I've never sweat so profusely. However, 
It's the most fun I think I've ever had in a Halloween costume, and I'll tell you why. It's okay. And here was the moment, was when Matthew and I parked outside this Sugar Mint gallery. It was the first time I'd worn it in public. Matthew purposely parked a block or two over so that we could have some time to walk on the way there. And it was a Saturday Past night. Past the hardware store from Halloween. We didn't have to pass it, but we were about a block from it. Absolutely. And seeing people's reactions. And then even when we left, like we, we were walking around town and a record store happened to still be open. So we just kind of walked in because Matthew thought maybe they'll have some old VHS tapes. He loves those. And watching people react because they could not see my face, but I could see them was so wonderful. And I realized that like, I've enjoyed so many years of my life. I've enjoyed people going to great lengths and being very uncomfortable so that I could like enjoy seeing their costume. And I was so happy to see like people would look at me and go, oh, oh my God. And then like start laughing and poking their friend and going, oh my God, look at that. And I was, Is this it made the first me time so you've happy. Been scary? No. In, in that way? No. Well, in a physically imposing way? When I, yes, in a physically imposing way. When I was and a child, I did like, like gross makeup, but you could still see my face. Yeah, it's like misery gets the job done. Yeah. And Mrs. Voorhees gets the job done. Mm -hmm. But they're not physically imposing just walking down the street. No, but I had shoulder extenders on in this costume. Yep. They made my shoulders higher. They made me seem really tall. And it's just really disconcerting to see. I, when I looked at myself in the mirror and I saw pictures of myself, I realized how frightening it was because you, when someone doesn't have a head. You expect a head. It's, it is very disconcerting. I'm probably going on too long about this, but it was such a unique experience. And I'm so glad that I made that choice because I feel like I brought Halloween cheer to some people this year in a way that I never did before. Welcome to a night of total terror. <laughs> night of the living dead. The dead. Who live on living flesh. The dead whose haunted souls hunt the living night. Of the living dead. Chat. Yes. Between the two of us, the one that has volleyed more, they're coming to get you, blank, in your case, Marshall jokes uh have been coming from you mm -hmm. do i do that a lot compared to me yeah uh since we've started this since oh, sure. we decided on this for a topic yes i've gotten it from you in text form and then uh this evening like as you were like entering my apartment you were like they're coming to get you marsha well i can explain okay number one it's because uh, i've been watching night of the living dead and documentaries on night of the living dead and it's top of mind but yeah. more importantly my first exposure to Night of the Living Dead. Yes. Hello, everyone. We're covering Night of the Living Dead. It was... Yes, that is our topic for tonight. <laughs> My first exposure to the film was repeatedly hearing the audio and seeing a little bit of the video in the beginning of Halloween 2. Okay. And that's a movie that you've been watching most of your life. Oh, yes. So I've seen Halloween 2 about a thousand times. And that line and th that moment, that bit of that scene that they show in the beginning of Halloween 2... They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it. You're ignorant. Stop it. You're acting like a child. I know those lines, and I saw that movie a thousand times before I ever watched any of Night of the Living Dead. And researching for this podcast is the first time I ever sat down and watched the whole thing front to back. Okay. 
They're coming to get you, Barbara. When I was going to school in Pittsburgh, just little bits of Night of the Living Dead sort of kept coming out at me. You know, I was in a film program in, in Pittsburgh. I was dealing with the same film processing company that they would go through for Night of the Living Dead. WRS in the school's library was like books about Night of the Living Dead. And I remember being at a concert and the guitar tech would come out and like fix things. And he had a tattoo of, you. it's not a shot that's in the movie. The girl. The girl. In the cemetery. Is she she's in, the in she is from what I can tell. Okay. Because I that she's outdoors, image definitely. She's outdoors. Well, that image is so maybe she's not in the cemetery, but she is outdoors. Yeah. And that image is so iconic to me, and people have it on buttons and tattoos and things. Yeah. But I realized watching this, I was like, it's not, That's in, the not in the movie. No. Yeah. Which it was must a be surprise. like a publicity still or something. Yeah. So he had like that image tattooed on his arm, and I think that as much as anything else led me to actually go to the school library, where you could watch movies at the library. Yep. And just like sit in one of their booths and watch. I did that in school. Night of the Living Dead with like headphones on in its entirety. I'm only now remembering, I think I did that like Halloween day. What? Like that's how I I recognized Halloween. I love a horror movie that has a nice solid association with October and or Halloween. Night of the Living Dead premiered at a matinee on October 1st. Okay. I'm like, oh, cool. October. Good. Good for Tis it. the season. I doubt anyone put much thought into it because... Oh, I'm sure. The legacy of Night of the Living Dead includes a very ill-advised run in matinees largely attended by children. Yeah. <laughs> did the distributors even watch the movie? Or did the people at the theaters even say like, hey, this might not be as jolly a film as, say, some of the, like, the Corman films. There's a 50th anniversary kind of retrospective article on RollingStone.com about the movie that does a really lovely job of setting the scene for said matinee experience that happened quite often where these adolescents and young people, young kids, would show up and they'd be laughing through, you know, the beginning because the music's a little cheesy, feels kind of old school. And that brother and sister banter is probably very familiar to children because it's adults... Going like, where's the candy? You slept in too late. Yeah. But the laughter goes away. Things get too serious. And by the end of it, children were like I'd say around absolutely the time traumatized. On the, uh, on the yeah. Stone. And then it only gets worse from there. And that's pretty bad. Yeah. Are we getting ahead of ourselves? We sure are. Okay. Where do you want to start? Talking about Night of the Living Dead. I'd say start with George Romero, but in doing so, you should start with what a collaborative effort this was. I didn't know. I didn't know until I started researching this movie. And it's so charming, the backstory behind how this movie got made. He was the director, and he did go on to do other Living Dead projects for the rest of his career. But at the time, it was a concern, a group of people. All with an equal stake in the film. They all, 10 people, put up $600. These were all pretty, pretty young people in Pittsburgh, out of college, and starting their own two different film production companies. Yeah, there was the latent image and then yeah. image 10, well, right? Well, no, latent image, I making... and I think uh, Hardman had mm. his own company. Oh, okay. It was just called, like, the Hardman Company. Mm. If, if I recall, we've both been uh, digesting a lot of uh, facts. Yeah, I've heard the name Image 10 well. As they well. combined their forces, uh, and 10 of them uh-huh. 
initially they got more investors down the line but 10 of them put in $600 each and they said well that should be enough to make a movie George what will the steaks be ready everything else is done and we're all starving to death tall and cold and Duke is a natural beer for the natural man your Pittsburgh and Allegheny County Chevrolet dealer where nice guys finish first George Romero was making commercials that's what these companies did they weren't feature film companies. They would do industrials. Local television commercials. Local commercials. Beer commercials. Ori makes the scene delicious. Commercials were becoming their own, in a sense, mini-movies. The Calgon story. What happens when a Calgon research team and their submarine are reduced to micro-size and sent on a dangerous mission deep inside a washing machine? Never more so than when they did the Calgon story. That was probably a pretty big account they landed, Calgon Soap. Mm -hmm. And they did a Fantastic Voyage parody where a submarine ship full of scientists got shrunk down and are now like in the washing machine trying to get out this stain. You'll thrill as Calgon dissolves the dirty leftover detergent film. It's working. The gray is gone. The fibers are clean. Let's get out of here. If you watch it, you can see Carl Hardman, uh, Mr. Cooper. He's playing like a German scientist. Mm -hmm. Somewhere in the back, Johnny's running around. Russell Striner. Russell Striner. Mm -hmm. there, there's a lot of R. Yeah. R's. It's hard to keep track of all of them. But that's about... one I learned. Russ Striner Wait, is Johnny. He was Russ Striner? Mm-hmm. Okay. So then Jack Russo. That's a different person, yes. And then Rudy Ritchie. Yeah, it's confusing. Oh, my gosh. Too many R's. Yeah, he's running around in the back. And then front and center is one of the... Uh, the two Judiths. Uh, she was Judith Ridley, mm. who would then go on to play like the girlfriend. What's, what's her name? Judy. Judith played Judy. Yeah. No. Uh, the whereas the other is, Judith played Barbara. We're trying to keep track of crew who doubled his cast. Crew, yes. And exactly. and th and that's to your point. You mentioned how collaborative and an effort it was. Crew that did different jobs. Yes. And what's important about that is that you mentioned Romero was the director of this film and went on to direct lots more movies as we know but he only incidentally and whatever became the director it yeah. was he had like just that much more experience than the others yeah hardman was more of a radio guy mm -hmm. he had a big history in radio but romero had done like a few more commercials and industrials and a segment for mr rogers neighborhood because this is pittsburgh mm -hmm. and thereby he became the director but like everyone else became producers and lighting people and grips and all and you hear them talk and about in carrying water yes from the stream to flush the toilets in the house yeah you hear them talk about it in the documentary that like they all felt as though and they, rightfully so they could all do each other's job because they could and so it was very much an all hands on deck situation but also a lot of cooks in the kitchen but it does yeah. sound like for the most part literal cooks in some case yeah it was pretty collaborative and friendly Along the way, like, everybody did a little of everything, including B-Zombies. It's pretty exciting. Pretty yeah. exciting stuff. This is damn exciting stuff. I didn't know where to put this story, but just that uh, Tom Savini, you know, special VEX makeup legend Tom Savini, who would later work on Dawn of the Dead. Yes, to, see to our Dawn acclaim. of the Dead, ep or see our Let's Go to the Mall episode yeah. to hear a lot more about Tom Savini. A little more. And he, as a Pittsburgh native, first met Romero... When Romero was hoping to do a different, much more artsy film before they settled on horror and had gone to like the local high school to audition kids to possibly act in it. 
And then when it became a zombie movie that he was going to do, Savini approached him and was like, hey, I'm a, I'm a pretty good hand at monster makeup. What do you think? And it was going pretty good. And it looked like he was going to work on Night of the Living Dead, which would have been amazing. But then he had to go to Vietnam. Yeah. Which I guess it's going to come up a few more times. The era in which this was made and distributed and viewed mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. Americans ties in very much with the film's importance and legacy. Yeah. I think as someone, and I forget who, said in one of the documentaries I watched that oftentimes you make a movie and then 20 years later you find out what it was about. I think in many ways Night of the Living Dead is kind of a rarity in the sense that a lot of people drew very specific things from it at the time. Okay. But I think that's only deepened as time has gone on and people have continued to view the film as it's, you know, where it's positioned in history. If nothing else... From when it started, the Vietnam War was the first televised war and news was still being done on film and basically the same equipment that they were using to make this movie. So it already had a very similar visual feel. Well, the news was in black and white. Romero talks about that, how that was part of their decision. They shot like a week of film and then they were like, should we go back and reshoot all this in color? And then they made the determination, no, because the news is in black and white. The new, you know, it's, we it need it look to look real. real and it's, you know, cheaper. <laughs> yeah. And part of that is they were using very lightweight cameras, but it would only be light, like 12 pounds. And it's like nothing when there was no dialogue, because when there was dialogue, it had to be encased in this thing called a, they called it the blimp, which was really heavy, but it stopped the sound that the camera would make from getting picked up by the microphones. So when someone's talking, the shots are fairly static. But when no one's talking, just a lot of movement, zombies, grabbing, things like that, then the camera can move around a lot more. Not unlike what you'd see on the news. Mm -hmm. But both you and I know that there is no film in this camera. It was shot in the summer months, mostly. They shot for 19 days and then had to stop and go back to work. And, you know, everyone had jobs and commitments. And then they came back to shoot for seven days and then go back to their lives and commitments. And then three days, which I believe that was the cemetery scene. Mm. So the beginning of the film was actually made last. Mm -hmm. But for our purposes, let's talk about it first. Great. I also want to take just a moment to say that there is a documentary that I watched that I cannot recommend enough. It's on YouTube. It's called The Legacy of Night of the Living Dead. Uh, It's a 40th anniversary reunion documentary where in 2008 they interviewed bunch of people from the film yeah i've seen it so good so you know then it's fresh in your mind that at the beginning they recreate the shots from the movie and it's judith o'day and russ striner barbara and johnny present day 10 years ago as we're recording this present day 2008 driving up to the cemetery and then they it's so delightful because they reminisce together they walk arm in arm and then you have individual interviews with them barbara um judith Uh o'day talks about what you're saying about the shooting schedule and how odd it was and how she didn't know any better and she didn't mind because she was young and excited to be working on a film and she was like, whatever, it didn't bother me to come back and forth. But she had grown up in Pittsburgh and then moved to Hollywood to like, whatever, make it big and then got called back to Pittsburgh to audition for this movie, which she ultimately booked. But she speaks like 
she has this like strange nearly english accent that cracked me up because she's going well you know that's how films are made and she says you know i had gone off to hollywood and then i got a call to come back and audition for a film in my hometown of pittsburgh and i'm like your hometown of pittsburgh is that where how people talk from pittsburgh i can tell you this no, but, they don't. But this documentary, the 40th anniversary retrospective, gave me something that like you want from every beloved film, which is the two of them, Judith O'Day and Russ Streiner, walking arm in arm and then looking at each other and going, you know what, I wouldn't trade a minute. Can you believe it's been 40 years? It was right over here. And they're like in the place they filmed an iconic movie scene, gesturing at the area. Well, I remember it was like this. And I couldn't believe what I had stumbled upon. And I'm like, what a joy. What an absolute treat. And yes, to have the, as they refer to him, the cemetery ghoul, they call them ghouls in this movie. They're not called zombies. They're ghouls. Yes. At no point do they call them zombies. That's right. That's important. Um, previous to this movie, zombies were mostly like Haitian, Caribbean, slaves to a witch doctor, mm. basically. Mm -hmm. Zombies. The living dead. Corpses taken from their grave. Were made to work. Sugar mill. Fields at night. They certainly didn't eat flesh, but they did get you, and you could run the risk of being turned into one of them if you were gotten. And they also didn't move terribly fast. Yeah. Something I never figured out is who took these undead ghouls, previously called flesh eaters, later called living dead, and ascribed zombies to them. Mm -hmm. And while it's accurate and completely transformed the definition of zombie, they were not the traditional zombie. Important to note. Yeah. Okay, so back to the cemetery. The cemetery. Well, there's no one around. Well, it's late. If you'd gotten up earlier. Oh, look, I already lost an hour's sleep on the time change. I think you'll complain just to hear yourself talk. There it is. It seems like, oh, of course, it's a movie about the risen dead. Of course, it would be in a cemetery. But it didn't have to be. Mm -mm. Because these aren't the kind of zombies that crawl themselves out of the ground. So the images of, like, death and its relation to the living starts right away. I wonder what happened to the one from last year. Each year we spend good money on these things. We come out here and the one from last year's gone. Well, the flowers die and the caretaker or somebody takes them away. Yeah, a little spit and polish, you can clean this up. Sell it next year. wonder how many times we bought the same one. The adult siblings have been driving all day to leave um, some flowers on their late father's grave. And there's a whole discussion about, like, what happened to the flowers from last year? As you know, Kat, I used to work in a cemetery a little bit when I was going to school. And what we would do is every Friday is when our dumpster got picked up. So whatever flowers, fake or real, were out, we wouldn't evaluate them until Friday because that's when the dumpster got picked up. So we would go around and we would look at the flowers that were set out. If they were real flowers, we would sort of guess if they could last another week. And if they were fake, we gauged how dirty they were getting. And if we thought they would be unacceptably dirty in seven days, we pulled them. Mm -hmm. And that's basically it. Good to know. I just wanted to say that if you leave flowers at a grave, it's not like the second your back is turned. 
Right. Some guy with a lawnmower is like, you're out of here. Or like Johnny in the movie suggests, Suggested I wonder how many times it. we've bought this same one and, you know, yeah. oh, that he, they're recycling a, it to sell it back in the gift shop. He's a big jerk from Go where he's talking about, just clean it off and sell it again. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. Cynical and quickly uh, killed. Mm. He'll hear you. Here he comes now. I'm getting out of here. Johnny. Now, Kat, you saw the 1990. I did. Directed by Savini. Directed by Savini. Doesn't the guy's clothes sort of come off? It's split at the seams, you see. Avoids having to force the arms and legs. Very clever, isn't it? Because you're you're buried with, like, slit clothing. Yes, so that was something that I was like, whoa. Because there are some big changes and some subtle changes throughout the 1990 version. And that one where you see him coming at them and you're not sure. You know, they're not sure if he's, they just think he's some guy. They're horny, Barbara. They've been dead a long time. But then you get a reverse, you see him from behind, and you can see his naked butt, and his clothes are split down the middle, and he's naked in the back, and you're like, oh, something's horribly wrong here, and they don't know yet, because they don't see his butt. But then as the the clothes come slipping off, you can see his, like, Y stitch from his, His, like, autopsy, autopsy, and then you're like, that was definitely, I mean, very Savini, you know, that obviously the gore factor is high. Yeah, and what you would get, and I don't know if you ascribed any backstory to the original cemetery zombie i didn't but oh i should say also in this one there is an open casket and like a hearse so like it's clear that he was in the process of getting buried in the newer one yeah in the newer one yes okay yeah so you can piece together a story there i never really thought about the cemetery ghoul in the original i don't know came from somewhere yeah look at the face it's vacant with a hint of sadness and a drunk who's lost a bed she escapes to a farmhouse johnny falls and hits his head Apparently, they use the sound of a melon being hit. Youch. Which is when his grandmother... Oh, yes. Russ Streiner tells a delightful story about how his grandmother saw the movie. And she was... I mean, you know, how many minutes into the movie is that? Five, six? Yeah. It happens very quickly. Because but his he... glasses knocked off. And yeah. she's like, Russ, your glasses. Yeah. He says that it was just a quick road to being absolutely horrified. And once his head got hit on that tombstone, she was not the same for the rest of the movie. Yeah. And could not enjoy herself at all. It really upset her to see her grandson taken out that way. But moving forward to the farmhouse, she runs for a bit, finds herself a farmhouse. As she's looking around, there is a corpse upstairs, which yeah. has been so eaten, it's not supposed to be able to rise again. That, yeah. that was the implication. Oh, yeah, sure. It was, it was like all chewed up. Yeah, so, I mean, like all the skin is off of its face. It's like a bloody skull with eyeballs. It's pretty gross. She doesn't get too far into it, and she um, goes outside, sees a couple more zombies, and then she sees Ben, who pulls up in a truck very quickly, and then he also quickly dispatches the zombies. And here's a fact about Ben. Ben played by Dwayne Jones. That he was played by Dwayne Jones. <laughs> That's our fun fact. Uh, that he was a black man. Mm-hmm. They were filming in 67. Plenty of racial tension in America. No real black action stars that I can... Not yet. Someone in one of the docs I watched even references Night of the Living Dead as sort of opening the door to black exploitation in many ways. Because Dwayne... It certainly uh, proved that it was uh, effective and a viable um, thing to sell. Right. Because he, he was the first black man to be the lead in a horror film. Yeah. 
and there haven't been many since, which is yeah. also interesting. Yeah. Don't worry about him. I can handle him. <laughs> Probably be a lot more of them as soon as they find out about us. The truck is out of gas. This pump out here is locked. Is there a key? We can try to get out of here if we can get some gas. Is there a key? And I'm not saying it like tricked the audience, but it did. It just started you with like a white woman and it followed her path. Yeah. And then she kind of checks out mentally. She goes catatonic, basically. And then the audience, whatever their preconceived notions going into this film would be, attaches themselves to the Ben character because there's no one else. There's no one else making decisions and getting stuff done. Do you live here? She quickly zonks. Yeah. And then it's him boarding the place up, making decisions, finding the rifle, dispatching zombies, white zombies. White zombies. Which I think enough people were on board with zombies not being considered people, mm-hmm. which I know nowadays that's the thing. It's like, oh, zombie apocalypse. You get to just go around shooting everybody you want. I think audiences were pretty quick to not consider zombies people because people will talk about him hitting Barbara because she's gotten frantic and later, which apparently the actor did not want to do because he was like yeah, you want me to discussion. you want me slapping a white woman on camera like this is not good for me yeah I think on the page it was even hitting her three times Oof. but on the page was written for they say it was written race neutral really it was written for whatever race Rudy Ritchie is right and also race neutral back then really just meant white because sure. that was everyone's default and still is. Yeah. Um, you know, but re- they did, you know, you hear different things and one was like, well, they didn't have any color in mind. It's like, no, but they had a person in mind yeah. and he's a color. Right. How do you think? Can we get him now or tonight? Tonight. Later, when you watch Dawn of the Dead, he's one of the bikers. Like, there's sort of two face bikers, and that's Tom Savini and this guy. Oh, nice. I didn't yeah. realize. So, he got his time in the in front of the camera. Yeah. But even he agreed after the audition of Dwayne Jones that it's like, this is the best guy we can get. Look, I know you're afraid. I'm afraid, too. But we have to try to board the house up together. Now, I'm going to board up the windows and the doors. Do you understand? We'll be all right here. We'll be all right here until someone comes to rescue us. But we'll have to work together. You'll have to help me. Changes to the script were to take him more of a polished direction in that he was originally supposed to be a truck driver and a bit rough around the edges. Whereas this guy, it's not like they ever say what he does for a living. Right. But he's better dressed than a truck driver. He's better dressed and Dwayne Jones just kind of looks nice. And he 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 doesn't have... pretty clean cut. Yeah. You know? Clean cut. It is interesting you bring that up, though. I... It did not really occur to me to think about what he was wearing, but when I think about if he'd been in like overalls or something, as though he'd been like working Just, on the farm, or I on a feel truck. like or on a truck. Like yeah, a that would be different. But that's not how he's dressed. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah he's got, I just got that sort of just uh, hadn't thought about it. Loose sweater and slacks. He just sort of looks like a nice guy. Yeah, whereas originally he was supposed to be much more blue collar. Interesting. But um, it's. Very much agreed upon, and unfortunately, uh, Dwayne Jones died before I think many retrospectives were made. Like, the film was appreciated. He had a heart attack, I read. Yeah. Yeah. So, but when you get, like, um, there were certainly no, like, conventions or DVD commentaries or... It's too bad, because he's the person that I would want to hear from the most. Did you... So, you have to rely on other people talking about him. 
Um, Carl Hardman in that 40th anniversary retrospective, um, did you cry like I did when he was talking about Dwayne Jones? Because there's a moment where he's kind of, he's talking about, he gets choked up. He gets really choked up and he's like, he got a raw deal and, and, um, I was not, I did not see that coming. And I, I was like, Oh boy, somebody's chopping onions in here. Yeah. There's just, you can tell that he meant a lot to everybody. Yeah, this room looks pretty secure. If we have to, we can run in here and board up the doors. Won't be long for those things be back pounding their way in here. They're afraid now. This was mm, the popularizer of the boarding up of the place of the average person dealing with an onslaught of ghouls. But Romero will be the first to admit he pretty much lifted that from I Am Legend. Mm -hmm. Which later, the Vincent Price film, Last Man on Earth, gets into that. Just that I'm just in a regular house and I got to fortify it because there's creatures trying to get in. They want my blood. Their lives are mine. I still get squeamish. I should do a brief check-in on the 1990 remake. Just to say that at this point in the story, most things are... Pretty similar. Barbara, ha- they're all named the same names. Okay. I, I think, no, there's a couple that are different. She's still Barbara okay. in this movie. But um, she makes her way to the farmhouse, and there are some ghouls there, and Ben comes along. Ben, who's played by Tony Todd. Okay. Um, Candyman. The Candyman. The Candyman, which is a great choice. But the main difference at this point, I would say, is that Barbara is not catatonic or not helpful. I understand she takes movie. a much more active role. Much more active. She's, I mean, she's upset because her brother has died. But uh, same way, you know, he falls, ghoul falls on him, hits his head on the tombstone. It's much more gross yeah. and bad. But yeah. I it, did see that scene. Yeah. But pretty much the plot has progressed the same way. But back to the original. The original. This man started walking up the road. He came slowly, and Johnny kept teasing me and saying, he's coming to get you, Barbara. As a collaborative effort, and fairly loosely scripted. Yeah, they were in production before they had a finished script. (laughs) Never really finished, either. Right. It was Judith O'Day who decided that her character would become much more inward as she processes what's happening. And this is... uh, A name was given actually, like like a lighting guy, who said, uh, why don't you have her pick up this music box? Hmm. And the music box was provided by Vince Servinsky, who owned a roller rink hmm. in Pittsburgh, who is among the unsung heroes of this film. He's a guy who was a real hands-on fellow and, uh, and kind of fell in with all these filmmakers. All right, Vince, hit him in the head, right between the eyes. He got kind of a raw deal in the movie because he's the one who shoots Ben at the end. He's part of the posse. But when it came time to, like, fix up the house, when it came time to, like, build a fireplace, the house didn't have, like, that kind of fireplace. When it came time to build a fake door to where the basement would be, when it came time to build, like, a bridge over the stream so they could get their equipment trucks in, it was all Vince. Wow, shout out to Vince. Vince took 50 bucks to the Goodwill. And said, give me everything you got. And he's the one that, like, sort of filled the house with, like, furniture and, and knickknacks. Along with other, other, like, investors in the movie, they would do that as well. But it was Vince's sister's music box. Hmm. But it was someone else, um, the Coopers, 
they also did the post-production sound for the movie. Yep. And it was one of their music, like their grandmother's music box that provides the music. So it's two different music boxes nice. at work here. And um, probably the most charming thing about him, Vince is, uh, he was among the people who actually slept in the farmhouse. As a lot of um, the filmmakers, they got cots and just stayed there overnight. They didn't leave and come back the next right. day. If you're working a 20-hour day, you're yeah. just going to close your eyes for three or four hours. Other people went home yeah. at the end of the day. Like Romero among them, they say like his cot ripped and he like fell through it one night. But towards the last night, Vince was too scared to stay in the house alone. So uh, Jack Russo stayed with him. That's really cute. Yeah. Too creeped out. It wow. was so much had happened already, I guess, in that house. Plus, you're kind of in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. It's in a farmhouse. I'd be freaked out. Zombies or no, you'd like a little company. Well, everyone knows that there's nothing in the dark that can hurt you. Most of the time. So, yeah, the music box, it's just got this great look. And while she's looking at it, you can watch Barbara's mind just kind of slip away while she stares at that music box. Yep. And from that moment on, it's really Ben's story. Yeah, and I gotta say, it was frustrating for me watching her do absolutely nothing. I was like, ah, woman. Um, that said, uh, Judith O'Day, at least having had 40 years to think about it in that retrospective, she's like, I quite like that she, you know, takes some time and then comes into her own and finds her strength again. And, you know, she's very she does. generous about that. Whereas I'm just kind of like, Jesus, woman, like, get it together. Oh, only 10 more minutes? We don't have very long to wait. We can leave. Well, we better leave soon. It's ten minutes to three. Yeah. Well, it gets to the point she's not even afraid anymore. Because she, she doesn't even know what's happening. No. Yeah, her brain checks out. It's just like, nope, sorry, that's enough terror for one day. And it's while Ben's sort of checking on things upstairs, he moves the body. The body is actually the little girl. It's uh, Kira. Oh, nice. Being drunk. Because she was the lightest person. So to, like, drag her on the carpet. You know, away. Cute. I did not know that. That was her. Because her dad, I don't think I've said, was Carl Hardman. Who played Mr. Cooper. Mr. Cooper. So this was kind of, I believe, just kind of like a fun summertime getaway for her. She speaks very fondly of her time yeah. on set. She Act says she had a blast. She also already loved horror movies as she was a little weird kid. She watched Chili movies. Billy. Yes. And got to take a little ride on a carpet. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> for, for a scene. Yeah. So while he's up there, the basement door opens. And I find this very interesting. It's, it's a ha it's a closed off. Like, how are you going to get more characters in there? And how are you going to advance things? But it's completely believable that all of a sudden the cast, like, triples. Yeah. And also, by the way, completely believable to me that people would cower in the basement and hear things happening upstairs and not come up to help. Totally. If you've seen the things that they've seen... Yes. I can't blame them. I'm not going to take that kind of a chance when we got a safe place. We luck into a safe place, and you're telling us we got to risk our lives just because somebody might need help, huh? Yeah, something like that. Speaking of seeing the things they've, they've seen, things come in over the radio as far as what's happening out oh, in the world. Oh, so important, yeah. And later television, but you get Ben's story. All the special effects in this movie that you don't get to see are all captured in Ben's story. Yeah. And I think future zombie films are all trying to show you the types of things he describes yeah that having happened to him it's like try to take that speech and make a movie as good as that speech yep 
where it's like, I saw maybe 50 or 60, to describing things they could never afford. <laughs> right. To see, like, the truck's on fire and there's 50 zombies hanging off of it. They're still coming at me. Everybody in the diner's dead. And it's like, <laughs> it's like what, what would your dream script be? You know, if you had unlimited money and resources, what kind of zombie movie would right. you make? Right, Okay, now have this one guy just say it. Right. I looked back at the diner to see if, if there was anyone there who could help me. When I noticed that the entire place had been encircled, and you can really see that he is a man of the theater, because mm-hmm. it's basically he just sort of stops everything and gives a soliloquy. By now there are no more screams. I realized that I was alone with fifty or sixty of those things just standing there. Staring at me. Now, among the things we learn once he gets the rifle is only headshots. The ghoul can be killed by a shot in the head or a heavy blow to the skull. This was the creation of the zombie monster. I know. I had that thought of like we everyone knows now. Everyone it's a knows. Headshot. But it's get it, him in the head. It's like when we found out, like when Silver got introduced to the werewolf lore. It was yep, like, had to happen at some point. Yeah, and somebody in the AMC History of Horror brought up that like all the other popular monsters were folk tales that then got written about, who then got made into movies. But this is the only monster that was like made in the movies. Yeah, monster type. Uh huh. I should say. When I try to think of the perspective of somebody watching it for the first time, it's all just the kids at the matinee, all just getting their mugs. Bug-eyed and yeah. pissing like themselves. When they see someone get shot and not stop, and then get shot in the head, and it's like, oh, okay, well, I guess that's that's the rule. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta shoot him in the head, or hit him in the head. Yeah. But uh, bullets in the rest of the body, that's just not going to do anything. Yeah. And then another thing that this introduced is if one bites you, you become one. Yeah. And that gets demonstrated through the little girl. Did she ask for me? She had to do anything. I don't understand. Baby. It's mommy. I heard. I'll come back down as soon as I find out what they want. Also in the basement is the all-American couple. Oh, geez. You get a Judy who... I'd say she was doing kind of a Jane Fonda thing, like with her hair. Yeah, that makes sense. And her boyfriend, Tom. Oh, boy. Played by Keith Wayne. Are you sure we're doing the right thing, Tom? What, about getting out of here? Yeah. Well, the television said that's the right thing to do. We've got to get to a rescue station. I don't know. Come on, honey. You're starting to sound like Mr. Cooper now. So to see that the two of them, the all-American boy and girl work out their relationship while making Molotov cocktails. (laughs) Like, that might be a a punchline now for some, you know, something. Sure. But at the time, to see that, to see that just sort of level of warfare instantly introduced into their lives, Mm. whereas they should be at the beach listening to their radio. Yeah. And, you know. Heading down to the malt shop for, you know. Malts. Malts and (laughs) phosphate sodas. We're being invaded! Instead, they're, they're doing the suicide mission to the gas pump together. Yeah. And that mission doesn't go great. Mm. And the truck blows up. And 
we are spared people being eaten alive. Mm-hmm. You know, that might have happened to Mr. Cooper. Hard to say. Or did he bleed out before she got him? I, I went back think and watched. that might have happened to Mr. Cooper. If I had to put it's money off screen. on it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's say the last thing for my saw money, it was does. his daughter chomping on him. Gross. Same with the mother, you know, killed with the trowel. And these guys were blown up before they were eaten. So potentially Barbara got eaten alive, but we mm. never see it. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself hmm. because what happened next after that truck blew up is all of the zombies descending on their blown up remains. And one of the investors was a butcher and would show up with like buckets of meat. And a lot of what they ate, I heard, was ham with chocolate sauce on it. Uh, cooked ham, I hope. Yeah, I believe. Yeah. The intestine were were rather uh, lifeless. You know, they just sort of like, like a deflated balloon. Yeah. Like what intestines are. Um, so like someone had to like take a, like a empty Coke bottle and like fill them with okay. water to well, kind of give them life. All right, now I feel sick. Yeah, that's uh, gross. Trivia: One of the um, I mean, all the, all of these zombies uh, were most, I mean, some were like neighbors and friends. I mean, just people who, also people who lived around the farmhouse. A lot of them were real sort of stand-up advertising executives. <laughs> who they knew or who had invested in the film and were normally rather staid. Like, that's a direct quote. They're rather staid fellows. But um, Did they let loose on let camera? let loose when it came time to, like, chew on bones and meat as like rather savage zombies it's pretty incredible that's fun yeah i also i and, did and the not sound at the time by the way that that music that they put like under it yeah kind of like it's almost like feedback it's upsetting one of the unexpected delights of that 40th anniversary doc that i watched was that woman the woman who they interview her on her porch and she's like older oh yeah she's like she lived near the farmhouse i can't believe it was 40 years ago she's like and she describes them coming to ask her and her husband if they want to be in the movie and he's like absolutely not and she's like that sounds like fun and then she talks about telling people like you know i was in that movie and they're like yeah sure sure and then she shows it to them and they're like wow look at you and she just it's like obviously was like one of the highlights of her whole life is being in this really famous movie uh what she said uh was um i didn't get paid much but i've had a million dollars worth of fun because of it. Again, another reason why this little 40th anniversary documentary is one of the most charming, wonderful. It was just such a joy yeah. to watch. Oh, and, and among the uh, the eating zombies is the, the newsman. They got a Chuck Craig. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. Um, who also wrote his own copy, which is part of why it sounds like such, sounds like real news. When he's reading it, that's because he was an actual news guy who was like, well, here's what I'd say and here's how I'd say it. Yep. And for the last week, Kat, I've been sending you Night of the Living Dead trivia. You have. Every night. Yes. And one of them was how when this would air on television, they would either censor like the crawl at the bottom, I think, or they would have to give like a warning saying like, this is not a real news program. This is not really To avoid another War of the Worlds debacle. Yeah, exactly. Just to be safe. I love that. They let people know uh, this is not actually happening, despite this very convincing newsman. Yeah. Who later also played a flesh-eating zombie. Look for the name of the rescue station nearest you and make your way to that location as soon as possible. And I got a few uh, notes here. 
on the nude zombie. Oh, yeah. That was something I did not expect. But I was like, of course there would be. Right? Of course. And just one more, just one more thing for those kids at the matinees. Yikes. Where they decided, it was like drive-ins and matinees before people figured out what it was and they started doing like midnight screenings and things like that. Whoa, hey, that lady's all kinds of naked. They put a tag on her arm to imply that she was presumably on a mortician's table. Mm-hmm. When right. she was the recently deceased risen dead. And the actor was a, an art model. Arts, she does make it onto a lot of posters, but they will draw on underwear. <laughs> Once you know like what you're looking at, you're like, that is clearly just like drawn on underwear. Yeah. Look. The cellar. The cellar, there's only one door, right? Just one door, that's all we have to protect. Tom and I fixed it so it locks and boards from the inside. But up here, all these windows, why, we'd never know where they were going to hit us next. The big debate of the movie, the if there's conflict between non-zombie characters, it's stay up top, go down to the basement. Yep. In favor of the basement is Mr. Cooper, played by Carl Hardman, who said that when... Dwayne took Ben a very sort of a level direction that that inspired him to take Cooper as a always angry character. Get the hell down in the cellar. You can be the boss down there. I'm boss up here. You bastards. There becomes two camps. It's stay up here. We got more of a chance. It's like the basement's the place. Infuriatingly, Mr. Cooper's right. Yeah. I mean, once you get rid of the little girl zombie out of the basement. Yeah. Uh, he's right. The basement is the place. Mm-hmm. We'll see who's right. We'll see. When they come begging me to let them in down here. That's important, isn't it? What? To be right, everybody else to be wrong. What do you mean by that? So, the little girl was his real-life daughter. Mm-hmm. Marilyn Eastman, I've read, is her godmother. And Eastman and Hardman... Were a couple. They never got married, but when Carl Hardman died in his obituary, it lists Marilyn as being his partner of like 44 years. <sighs> well, they were together in that documentary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, there's a story there. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know the particulars of it, but so it's like they were a couple. That was his daughter. And it seems that like Marilyn Eastman was also a, a real presence in the daughter's life as well. Yeah. So it was a like a, a family unit, you know, at work in this movie. Yeah. For real, for real. It's nice. Things end for Ben in the basement. And this, just shocking. Like, the last scenes in the basement of, like, the daughter going full zombie. They say that she was, like, when it looked like she was eating her dad's arm off, it was actually, like, a hoagie. Mm-hmm. With, like, chocolate sauce. Yeah. And then Ben comes down, and he's got two brand new adult zombies to deal with. So he shoots them both. And that, to me, was like as effective as the basement scene in Dawn of the Dead was. It was like that. Except he's not like a SWAT team guy. He's just some guy having to just like... He's made it through so much before this point. Even from Dawn of the Dead. Because that's just a killer scene in Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. When he was in the basement. Yeah. He didn't know those people. Right. When they were alive. But he did in this instance. It's one thing to gotta, shoot cracks off at zombie heads of people you don't know. But people to who then, are introduced to you as a zombie already. Absolutely. But to then to know someone and get to, even if you're arguing with them, to yeah. get to know them as a human and then watch them now that they've turned is and horrifying. Ben, a great moment of just like 
regret and overcome. He's been keeping it together pretty well through this whole movie, but now that he's in the basement by himself, everyone's gone. Everyone. Did he, you mention that he shot Mr. Cooper oh. pre-zombie? I don't think we mentioned yeah, that. Yeah, Mr. Cooper tries to get the gun from him. He gets the gun back. And Ben's had enough, yeah. and, he, and he shoots him. Just shoots him in the gut. He makes it down I was shocked. Steps. I was not expecting that. Yeah. And that is another thing. He's been shooting off white zombies, but now it's like, you just shot a white man. Yeah. It's That's right. The biggest jerk in cinema, but still. I was shocked when he shot him, but you're right. Like at the time, Mr. Cooper is a an incredibly unsavory character, and you wanna slap that guy if not shoot him because it's like he oh he'd already every just turn, straight up punched him yeah but yes which was very satisfying but at every turn he's just betrayed and betrayed and betrayed you cannot trust him that's not the type of person you want. And how many chances do you give somebody in a life or death situation when they keep putting your life in danger before you pop one off? Yeah. Yeah. But again, as far as like the actor taking risks of just like, I've got to go back out in the world. But then again, that also sort of speaks to, did they really think many people would even see this movie? Now there's always the like, uh, I have a question. Did you know it would become as big as it it wound up coming? No, never. We were just making a little movie on a farm. Right. Yeah, but like just the notion that anybody would see it ever. Yeah. Probably felt kind of low outside of just like a Pittsburgh drive-in. And I'm sure the implications weren't, they didn't feel them, those implications, as I, I strongly. Think, the, the, I think Dwayne might have. Maybe, for sure. But, but he the still filmmakers. Did it. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Which brings us to the posse. Oof. Hey, Cass, put that thing all the way in the fire. We don't want it getting up again. Interpreted as a lynch mob. I think rightfully so. I mean, they've, they've, so for the day, I think we should mention that the black and white footage really can be compared side by side with a lot of the, you know, footage of the civil rights movement and dogs yeah. in the streets with the cops. The dogs. I mean, you getting, see, like the riots, taking you see down German shepherds, protesters. Yes, they are German shepherds. Um, mostly, it goes to say they really didn't know many people of color, and they say it was just a coincidence. No long hair showed up. Because they would have taken them, either, if they'd showed up for the posse scenes. But all Long they... hairs? Yeah, you know, it was, it was the late 60s. Oh, sure, got it. Hippies. Yeah, hippies. But these look like, yeah. But all these people, looking back, and you say, like, time, you know, 20 years later, you know what movie you made. They all just look like the white guys outside of, like, the ice cream shops, or the, the diners. Yeah. Being like, get out of our diner. And, you know, I mean, I'm sure plenty of people just wore collared shirts with short hair but the ones you see news footage of are all the ones that are just like you know stay on your side of town well we killed 19 of them today right in this area those last three we caught trying to claw their way into an abandoned shed they must have thought somebody was in there their window at the time it was just like hey guys just show up in uh, whatever clothes you've got and now 40 years later 50 years later now by the way this year is the 50th anniversary yeah 50 years later those clothes are just associated with like that time and era whereas at the time it was just like shirt and slacks yeah but then you've got the sheriff who's there with like cigars in his hat brim being like oh we're him over there yep and they I show love up the line oh. i don't know why it just hits me so hard when he says yeah they're dead they're all messed up that's a popular line that line ugh, it's a great line are they slow moving chief yeah they're dead they're all messed up the posse in the remake barbara ends up running into these guys and they're very there's a lot of like rednecks and they kind of put it put a real fine point on that they are in fact they're enjoying it so much i think in the original they're not 
the they're original... for the most part getting down to business. Yeah, um, now it's in Dawn of the Dead that they're more like wahoo. Yes, but also and and they're they pull in those elements which had already wahoo, been made by the time. it had already been made before the remake. So Dawn of the Dead was seventy eight. Eight. And the remake is 12 years later in, in 90, but yeah. so they're pulling in elements from, I'm sure they were directly referencing elements from the, from the, from Dawn of the Dead, but there are, they've got in the remake, they've got next day, they've got like a pit, a little circle where they're like wrestling with or messing with zombies. Oh, they've really? got them hanging from nooses from trees and upside down by their feet and they're undead alive, but they're, they're really drawing more fine point on it. Oh, yeah. We know we'll be into it most of the night, probably into the early morning. We're working our way toward Willard, and we'll team up with the National Guard over there, and then we'll be able to give a more definite view. Thank you very much, Chief McClellan. This is Bill Cardill, WIC TV 11 News. Chili Billy. Oh, yes, please, let's talk about him. Plays the newscaster. He's credited as Chili Billy. He had been doing the Pittsburgh horror movie show, Chiller Theater, for about four years. Which Kira, the woman the who plays girl. the little girl, says she watched. She loved it. Yeah. Yeah, she loved the, those horror she movies. She was very familiar. He was already just like a behind-the-camera guy in Pittsburgh, and then the opportunity to host the Chiller Theater came up, and he became a local personality. That's where he got the chili from. The sports guy who led into that show was like, stay tuned for Chili Billy and Chiller Theater. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And that stuck. Yeah. And he became Chili Billy. And he was a sport. Mm -hmm. At first he said no when they asked him to be in the movie. It was just time. He was like, I don't have time for that. I work till four in the morning. Yeah. Hosting horror movies. And they were like, we'll make it really easy and quick for you. Just come by. And meanwhile, he spends 12 hours sitting around on set before they shoot anything. But he seems good-naturedly glad that he shot it. Oh, sure. Years later. He's like, I'm so glad I did it. And after that, he would promote it on his show. He'd be like... You know, we got these people uh, filming a real horror movie here in Pittsburgh. I don't know how much more of the production they had to go, but he would promote their production. He's also in the remake, by the way. Oh, good. Yeah. He was not the kind of host who would use a costume or a pseudonym beyond Chili. Mm -hmm. So he was just sort of himself. He would usually wear like a tuxedo. He was on the air until 83, and then in 98 came back as a farewell to just his whole... Like he was just retiring from television. So he did one last chiller theater, and the movie he showed... Night of the Living Dead? And his guest was George Romero. Wow! As they did sort of like a retrospective on both the film and his own career in broadcasting. All right, Steve, tell him we're going to stay with it, and uh, everything appears to be under control. I'm glad I deep-dived on research, because I found my favorite detail, which was Marilyn Eastman, Mrs. Cooper... She was all over the radio, and she'd done the weather. And she was very, very beautiful as well. Beautiful woman. Among her roles was Kamenelfa, the vampire lady on the Chili Billy show, ah! used to promote Commonwealth plumbing and heating. <laughs> so she would use a bathtub instead of a coffin. Oh, my goodness. I went on, like, a mad search. I was like, I have to see what this looked like. And the only thing I could find was this ad from, like, a Pittsburgh newspaper for Commonwealth Heating and Plumbing. Okay, so here's just... It's just a big ad (laughs) for Commonwealth. And down in the corner, you see her with, like, a widow's peak and her arms crossed, and she looks like a vampire lady. And what does it say? Common... See, 
Commonwealthia on Chiller Theater every Saturday at 11.15 p.m. Wow. After wrestling, I believe. <laughs> at least when he started, they would show wrestling and then tear down the ring and set up his, uh, like, like right there in the same studio. Wow. Set up the Chili Billy set. So, I mean, you can't see it great, but there it is. Um, nice. Marilyn Eastman, Mrs. Cooper as the vampire who loves quality plumbing and heating. Wow. <laughs> There you go. Commonelthia. These stories are strange, but true. When I saw it for the first time, back in the day, I was used to zombie movies. You know, I'd seen Dawn of the Dead. I'd seen Return of the Living Dead. And uh, other films with zombies. There was less then than there is now, of course. But to me, the people who had to confront zombies were by and large punks. Like, literally punks. Or teenagers. Or post-apocalyptic survivors, you know? And what I had not prepared myself for, for the original Night of the Living Dead, was that the people going up against the zombies in this one weren't SWAT team members. They were a nuclear family, an adult brother and sister, the all-American boy and girl. As far as having a black lead, uh, Dawn of the Dead had really prepped me for that. Yeah. I just saw him as like another version, but that guy was like a SWAT team member. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, they some never regular say Joe. just some regular guy, regular Ben. And when it comes to who's going to like slowly turn and then turn into a zombie again, what I was prepared with was like the thrill seeking SWAT team member from Dawn of the Dead mm -hmm. and not an 11 year old girl. One thing I do want to say, you know, everyone, we've talked about the cultural, socio-political implications of the film. Yes. Um, uh, but intended and interpreted. Absolutely. But what I think is important to note is that Romero, though he's like totally down with the viewing of the film, was, may he rest in peace, of all of the things we've talked about, he says that they did have an intention. They did have an underlying meaning. It wasn't just some dumb movie they were making. But that for him, at least purposely, it was more about the disintegration of kind of the family unit and of society, the collapsing of the social order in America. Yeah. You know, how separated people are from each other. Which, which has become like a trope and an appeal of the zombie films. Absolutely. And I think is really resonant today. And I guess um, as time goes by, it's different social norms that get dropped. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So something made today wouldn't be the same as something made, you know, back then. I think I kind of took it when I heard him say that or read it, wherever I found that nugget, I was thinking mainly about the lack of communication and ability to work together of like Ben and Mr. Cooper and the arguments that were taking place and, and especially the Coopers and or everyone who's in basement sort of hearing a woman screaming and like not coming to help her. Yeah. Because this is the time when, you know, America was in, I guess what, like post-war, like you've got like an ideal, an idyllic America. The boom's off the rose when it comes to right. America's image of itself. Absolutely. But before that you had, you know, it was like neighborhoods with neighbors and ah, if you need a cup of sugar versus now, yes, the bloom is off the rose. People yeah. are not treating each other the same way or seeing each other quite the same way. So that's what was more intended. Um, but of course, you know, once the art is out of your hands, 
people will do with and interpret it however they see whatever the lens they see it through and this movie is just so it's just it's beautifully done it's so simple in many ways stark yeah so it's really easy to put that on it whatever whatever it is you see Yes, Marshall. We've survived. We did it. We survived the night. This one was uh, daunting, I have to say. Yeah. Just because there's so much importance behind it. Mm -hmm. It was such a blind spot for me for so many years, and I'm thrilled to have it be something I know a little bit more about. And now I know a lot more about it. Yeah. Just because there's, like, books. I mean, enough time has passed. There's been, like, every decade's got its own retrospective. Uh, plenty of things out there, guys, if we've uh, piqued your interest as to what this and what has been written about and talked about, but is not immediately obvious, completely independent film. Mm -hmm. This was a real indie um, made on a shoestring by people who believed in it. One thing I recommend, sidebar, is um, the uh, I started watching him 10 plus years ago when he was the angry Nintendo nerd. But then he became the angry video game nerd. Um, it's James Rolfe. He's Cinemassacre is his like YouTube okay. channel. He does a commentary. Um, oh, like, can, like his own? Like, like you can like line it up? No, it's just there on YouTube. The movie is playing and his vocals are playing. That's right. Um, it's in a nice little package. And he tends to, like he has this character he plays where he like screams and yells and he's very funny and fart jokes and all that. But he knows a lot about film. And he, I mean, you know, he's a, he was kind of an amateur who became a professional YouTuber Mm -hmm. You know, um, but his commentary is really entertaining and it's thoughtful and kind of nice to watch. Mm. Um, so folks look for that or the riff tracks. Yes. Version. You were watching that when it came over, weren't yeah. you? Yeah. Or the two commentaries on the DVD that I had or the first episode of the AMC history of horror. I found a great interview with Romero at TIFF at the Toronto international film festival. It was a, if you just Google George Romero Tiff yeah. interview, there's an on the audio is not great, but it's a fun interview with him about it from a few years back. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of information. Plenty to be said, or just watch the movie. How long has it been, folks, since you sat down and watched Night of the Living Dead? Maybe it's time for uh, you to dust off and resurrect that DVD from the vault. It's certainly accessible. And a lot of that's because they lost their copyright due to accidentally editing Oof. out when they changed it from Night of the Flesh Eaters to Night of the Living Dead. We didn't even get into that. Oof, that's depressing for it, them. It is. But probably but, is part of the reason the movie is so big today. Yeah, I think it was able to spread and sustain because different um, avenues and different venues could show it for free. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that probably contributed a lot to its lasting legacy. Although did not contribute much money to mm. the people who uh, should have been making money off of it this whole time. Right. Anyways, speaking of things for free, find us on the internet. If you've enjoyed what you've been listening to, follow us on iTunes or follow us on Facebook or Tumblr or Twitter. It doesn't cost you a thing. 
and can't say exactly when the next episode is going to come out, but we've already got a dandy of a topic, and we're going to start working on it uh, through the holidays, I'd say. Oh, yes. It's, it's going to be our constant companion until we can sit down again. That's right. And hash that one out. So um, thank you for listening. And Kat, anything to, to add to what we've said so far? Um, let me think. Beware the moon. Beware the moon.